Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Welcome everyone to CRISPR Cuts. Today is an episode with two Kevins. One is Kevin Davis, our special guest, who is the editor of CRISPR Journal and also the author of his latest book, Editing Humanity, The CRISPR Revolution and New Era of Genome Editing. So we'll be talking a lot about that with Kevin. And the other Kevin, uh, who has been my co-host on multiple episodes, is uh, Kevin Holden, uh, who is head of science at Synthago. So we'll be together interviewing Kevin Davis about his book, and let's get started. So first of all, welcome, Kevin. Thank you for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. We can never have too many Kevins. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, good to see you again. You too, Kevin. All right. So I am going to try my best to make clear which of the Kevins I'm talking to, but mostly it will be you, Kevin Davis. So could you start with an introduction about you know your current position, a little bit of educational background and professional journey of how you got there? Sure thing. So I'm currently the executive editor of the CRISPR Journal, and really the genesis and launch of the CRISPR Journal and the planning and inception of the book, Editing Humanity, kind of went hand in hand. It all kind of started four or five years ago. I was somewhat a little late to the CRISPR party. I was working on another book and suddenly seeing the likes of Dauber and Charpentier and Zhang uh, winning all these uh, prestigious awards. I think this CRISPR thing, there's obviously something, something to this. I'm a geneticist by training. I did a PhD, so I should go, quickly go back and say why this was so interesting to me. I did my PhD in London at St. Mary's Hospital in the 1980s. So I was part of a big team that was searching for the gene for cystic fibrosis and moved on to a, come to America, to Boston, to do a postdoc, uh, first at the Whitehead Institute and then briefly at Harvard Medical School. But I soon found myself a little bit out of my depth and looking for a way away from the bench, but still to stay in science. I think it's a a career dilemma that many people have faced. And I saw an ad in the back of Nature to join the editorial staff of Nature. And I thought that was my eureka moment at the lab, the one one aha moment that I ever had. So I applied for that and joined the staff of Nature in 1990. And then my big break came a year later when they hatched a plan to launch Nature Genetics. And I was just in the right place at the right time. And Nature Genetics was a runaway success, not because of any editorial smarts that I had. It just was the journal that captured a, a field that was absolutely booming with the launch of the Human Genome Project. Um, and in the publishing world, there just wasn't a journal that could move quickly and, and quickly publish and promote these sorts of um, papers. So I've stayed in publishing ever since, that's been 30 years. I've written um, a handful of books, sometimes by myself, sometimes with a co-author um, over that span, all to do with genetics. It, like, it has to be on genetics, so I'm not qualified to write anything else. It has to be a big story that I feel has both medical and maybe societal interests. So there's a story worth telling to try to reach a broad audience. 
And there has to be some human drama, some twists and turns and some interesting characters that I feel can propel the, the narrative part of the story. And so obviously the, the world of CRISPR, once I quickly uh, cocked onto that, uh, checked all of those boxes. So I uh, dashed off an application to the Guggenheim Foundation, which uh, amazingly was uh, accepted. Uh, so that gave me the confidence and sort of the propulsion to start uh, researching and writing the book. And at the same time, I had uh, I'd met uh, Marianne Liebert and the president of the Liebert Publishing Company, Marianne Russell, over dinner, and I just sort of almost casually said, I, I'm really interested in this CRISPR field. I think you should, whether I join your company or not, uh, I think you should do a journal. And um, they, they sort of looked at each other and <laughs> the eyes met over the dinner table, and uh, I knew they were going to do it, and, and they, they offered me uh, the chance to go and help launch that. So we pulled a really wonderful editorial board together, Rodolfo Rang, who is our chief academic uh, editor and makes all the big decisions. But it's been fun um, seeing the journal really evolve and develop and, and gain some momentum over the last three years. And of course, thanks to Syntego for all the many ways that you've supported the journal during that time. Yeah, Kevin, I was going to say, given your, your background as a, as a geneticist and now getting to know um, all of the, a lot of the players in the CRISPR story, you know, how did you feel this kind of unique position you had um, was really an important perspective to share, uh, you know, uh, in terms of inspiring you to write this book? Yeah, when I embark on a book, it, it's, I'm always aware that there are two stools I'm likely to fall between them. I'm trying to write a book that I hope will appeal to the scientific community, the people in the trenches, the people doing the work, and um, share some insights and anecdotes and stories and maybe a little bit of gossip here and there that they may not have uh, captured uh, you know, in the course of their own work. But at the same time, I'm trying to reach a much bigger audience. So there's always the question of how technical do you get? And I'm, so in writing the book, it's, there's always that sort of, you know, I want to I give some molecular detail and show, show that um, it's getting to some of the molecular weeds, but, but not to such a suffocating degree that, you know, my mum's going to close the book after 30 pages and say, oh, geez, Kevin, what were you thinking? <laughs> so the first part of editing humanity is very much about the players and the uh, the heroes of CRISPR, to use Eric Landers' immortal words. And so it was fun. And really, it's been one of the pleasures over the last three years in getting the journal off the ground is being able to go to a lot of the conferences. We were just talking about the uh, Keystone meeting in Banff, which I think was the last in-person conference that we were both at, Kevin. And uh, the, the, the real um, pleasure and thrill it is still to sit down and hear these people give talks. I mean, to hear, for example, 15 months ago, uh, David Liu presented Cold Spring Harbor, the first account of prime editing, and looking around the audience and seeing 450 scientists literally on the edge of their seat because he hasn't shared any of the details of what he's about to present in the abstract book and then sort of seeing their minds almost being blown in real time. Yeah, that, that's, a, yeah, that's a thrill. I've been living vicariously through people like that now for the last 30 years. Of course, the speed and evolution of the CRISPR field, um, really, uh, there's, there's nothing, I haven't seen anything like it, really. The last book I did was about next-gen sequencing, and that was a fun ride. But the beauty of CRISPR is still, it has its roots in academia. It's still very much the... The, um, the, the discoveries and inventions um, and advances that are being reported in largely academic settings that are then rapidly being commercially developed. So it's, it's a fun ride that's going to continue for a long time, I think.
So you mentioned that you've written this book uh, for scientists as well as uh, the general public. So as a science communicator, I find it very fascinating. Was it difficult to have that balance of, uh, you know, how much detail to go into and yet keep it like, yeah, interesting for both these very different audiences? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm no Carl Zimmer or Ed Young, so it is, it is a challenge. And I think probably there are a few places where I maybe got a little bit too in the weeds. And so, but on the whole, most of the reviews have said that they like it. Sort of, it's a very uh, breezy book. I tried to, I really tried to be myself in writing this book. I've been doing this now for thirty years. It's themed that if ever there was a time to just sort of relax and tell stories, and occasionally put myself in the story if if it seemed appropriate, I thought, you know, what, why the hell not? And I was still to work with. Um, uh, Jessica Case, uh, my editor at Pegasus Books, who pretty much left me alone and, and sort of indulged me and, and let me. The version of the book that you see is with only minimal touches here and there, um, the, the, the manuscript that I delivered. So hopefully uh, uh, both camps are able to get something out of it. Yeah, I think that's uh, actually, Kevin, you and I have had quite a few chats over the years. And yeah. you reading the book reminded me of having a conversation with you. So I think you struck that chord really oh. well. And I should have just got the audio version. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's it's fun, uh, funny uh, that as I'm writing the book in the sort of the, the final throes of doing the research, you know, I'm going to these conferences, um, and you're at most of them as well, Kevin. And um, suddenly, I'm seeing a gentleman in the front row with white hair. He doesn't really look like part of the community. And I do a double take. And I'm sure I've seen this guy before. And of course, it's Walter Isaacson. And uh, then the penny drops that he's also researching the book, uh, largely a biography of Jennifer Doudna. And so there was a bit of a race on over the last 12 months to make sure that uh, at least I tried to get my book out a few months ahead of his. Otherwise, I was going to be you know, lost in, the, in the, uh, the wake of The Code Breaker, which is this book which is coming out in a couple of weeks. But there's been a flurry of really good books. Hank really has a book out called Christopher People. Uh, Evan Kirksey, an anthropologist, had a book out a few months ago called The Mutant Project, where he provided some very interesting uh, and unique reporting on Her Jankui and some of uh, Jacqui's uh, family and some of the uh, volunteers for his uh, his work. So uh, John Evans had a book uh, on genome editing, and uh, so it's it's been fun to uh, to, to sort of uh, be part of that mix. So you mentioned uh, like you know Walter's book maybe is focusing a little more on uh, on kind of the biography of the the Nobel laureate for CRISPR, yeah. one of them. You've touched in this book on you know virtually all aspects of how CRISPR could alter our world, kind of at the macro level in the book. I think you know you talk about Stephen Hawking's idea of superhumans and the controversy of editing human embryos, treating genetic diseases, you know, and the potential of impacting you know food production in the world, helping to even fight the pandemic. Thinking about the micro level, how challenging was it to kind of frame that for for your audience in terms of How's, how's it, the importance of CRISPR, how's actually changed what we do in the lab, um, how we actually perform experiments, how we do drug discovery, right? Study gene function. Yeah, I didn't, I, and I probably didn't go into that side of things as much as I could or should have. As a human geneticist by training, the end, the goal of my research when I was at the bench was always to find disease genes and then, well, why are you doing that? Well, obviously, it's to diagnose those diseases and eventually cure them. And going back to my days as a grad student or even as a postdoc, 
we always thought we were just starting to hear the first rumblings of gene therapy, meaning gene replacement therapy. But the idea of actually going in and fixing or editing a gene, that I don't even think we talked about it, let alone in sort of science fiction terms. So my lens is very much, I don't apologize for this, it's very much the sort of the medical, clinical, therapeutic lens, because I think that's what mostly interested me. And uh, most, I think, interests most readers. It's about how, how is this CRISPR technology that I'm reading about and hearing about, uh, how is this, uh, other than you know, entertaining me in films like Rampage, how is this going to impact my family? So that's where uh, most of my attention was, at least in the first half of the book. And so you know, hearing about the successful treatment of Victoria Gray, the uh, African-American sickle cell patient in that, you know, this early trial for CRISPR therapeutics and Vertex was a wonderful way, even though it's still very early days and, and um, this is really just the first clinical trial getting underway, wonderful to be able to at least put her on a pedestal and say, here is a brave, brilliant volunteer pioneer of genome editing and um, we're not by any means suggesting that every trial is going to be this successful um, or every patient is going to have the success that she's had or seems to have had but that's a that's a tremendously empowering gratifying story it gives us some hope this isn't just me so waving my hands saying this is going to cure everything so um, I, I did briefly talk about some of the uh, other uh, you know, research applications and uh, you know, when Carl Zimmer reviewed the book for the New York Times, actually the, the day of the Nobel Prizes, they rushed the review out. He, 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 his sort of his one kind of criticism was that you, you've, you've spent you know, 90% of the book hyping CRISPR and talking about what an amazing, disruptive, groundbreaking technology is. And yet here we are all mired and suffering in the midst of this COVID pandemic. Well, how come, COVID, how come CRISPR hasn't been able to you know, address this? And to which my... Um, you know, my sort of comeback would be, I suppose, well, you know, it's not like people aren't trying. I mean, you know, Downer's lab and Fung Zhang's and, you know, many of the big labs immediately pivoted and turned their attention to COVID and figuring out ways that they could diagnose it, maybe using CRISPR, maybe not. And I think uh, the progress that we're making on the diagnostic side is undoubtedly going to have benefit for, for diagnosing these diseases. It may not be COVID-19, maybe it'll be COVID-22 or 24 or whatever the next iteration of the, of the coronavirus pandemic is. So towards the end, I do try to give some more fanciful um, areas. We talk a lot bit about um, agricultural biotech and some of the um, you know, very, uh, very important uh, application of CRISPR. Was George Church and the Woolly Mammoths and some other some other fun examples, gene drives. So the end becomes a really a smorgasbord of, of other applications beyond the clinic, and then we come back, of course, to the ethics and uh, you know thinking a bit more further afield about whether and how we should apply genome editing for the benefit of the human species. I guess going back to to Minu's question, um, it actually you know, thinking about how you address a, a wide audience um, and also keep the scientists engaged, it is important um, to, you know, frame that macro context. Um, personally, as a scientist, I, I was nerding out a bit when we, you went into the, the chapter about David Lewin base editing. So, yeah, maybe we can save uh, more of that for another book in the future. Yeah, well, maybe, I'm sure I'm sure base and prime editing and, and uh, the other all the, all the other new technologies with, uh, with new CAS enzymes that we haven't even discovered yet necessarily. I mean, I've got no doubt there's going to be more books. Yeah, I did put a chapter in at the end on, uh, on pretty much on base editing because it was important, I think, to say that 
you know, Christmas won the Nobel Prize, but that's in a way it's just the beginning of the story. Here's a relatively new technology uh, developed in large part by you know, a pair of brilliant, charismatic postdocs in David's lab, uh, Alexis Comor and Nicole Gordelli, um, who I had the fun of interviewing a couple of years ago for, for the Christmas Journal's podcast series, Guideposts. And uh, they really inspired me to see there were so many serendipitous moments in the discovery, how, how, how they arrived in this lab. Nicole wasn't even working on base editing until she sort of saw the cool stuff that her, her friend Alexis was, was working on. And so switched projects halfway through her, her postdoc, which is a very brave, almost insane thing to do, but it, it paid off beautifully. And now, of course, we see in some of the preclinical work with the progeria stuff uh, just being published in Nature, uh, where David's collaborated with Francis Collins, uh, and some of the stuff that uh, Verve Therapeutics is working on in, in um, heart disease, some amazing preclinical potential for base editing, a technology that is, what, barely five years old. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's not hard to nerd out, even as the author, I'm sort of geeking out as, as I'm writing this stuff. It's so... It's so exciting to think where this could go. Yeah, and, and to go back to one of the uh, patient stories that you mentioned, right? Like Victoria Gray was probably one of the many, many stories that you covered in the book. So my question is, you also interviewed a lot of scientists uh, throughout the book. Do you have any interesting anecdotes or do you have like memorable stories to share from all these personal interactions and just stories that you covered? I suppose that the one that most comes most vividly to mind was was spending a very enjoyable day with Francisco Mojica uh, in the Salt Lakes, uh, just south of Alicante, which is in, in many ways, at least in the popular telling of the CRISPR story, it's kind of where it began. And um, he's a very uh, modest and um, affable gentleman. And it was, I learned that there were many funny, humorous moments. He told me as we're arriving in this big industrial salt factory almost where they're, they're sucking the salt uh, extracting the salt from the Mediterranean that you know he's always come down here with film crews and photographers and they're begging him to sort of scoop up a sample of this murky water and hold it up to the Mediterranean sun and he said the, the, the irony is I never actually came here to take samples because when I started my PhD, they already had the, the bacterial samples in the, or the, uh, the archaea samples in the, in the lab. So this is just for show. <laughs> I thought that was quite, kind of cute. And then we, we went, as one does, uh, in a hot summer day, we went for a beer uh, for, for lunch, uh, before lunch after he's shown me around this, uh, these beautiful uh, salt lakes. And I said, you know, you, you, you know, the Spanish press are clamoring for you or suggesting that you're a Nobel Prize candidate and you're giving lectures around all around the world. This, this is an amazing story, amazing journey that you've been on. And he looked at me in a very low voice. He whispered, I hate it. I, I hate it. And he just wanted, he, he, he likes you know, on some level the credits and the recognition he was getting but it was proving too much. And he just said, I just want to be left alone. I just want to do my work and go home to my wife. And here is, uh, I just thought that was such a lovely poignant story where he's kind of got his priorities right, I think. So I love meeting that, but there were so many other good stories. And I think a lot of the, I also had a lot of fun, obviously as a uh, former and indeed still current journal editor, sharing the stories, the, the, the role that journals play in the 
dissemination of science and thus the way that scientists get credit for not just in CRISPR but in many other spheres of research as well but I think it's probably yes, well known now that it's kind of fun I suppose better over a beer but fun to sort of play the the sliding doors what if game you know what if cell hadn't rejected Virginia Shixness's uh, paper in early 2012 or you know what if if Doubtner's own work following up uh, her momentous paper with Charpentier in science what if her follow-up paper had you know, zoomed through peer review and come out before even the Zhang and Church papers in, in uh, the first week of January 2013. You know, a lot of the, the to and froing and, and pop drama around uh, who invented CRISPR could be very different if, if, if any of those uh, events had happened. We might not even be talking about Francisco Mojica if two other groups had published their papers a little bit earlier than his paper spent almost two years in peer review. So, yeah, so many interesting uh, uh, stories. That, uh, but it's a fascinating community. And I think as uh, you know, what prompted Eric to, one of, the reasons, one of the things that prompted him to write The Heroes of Christmas, and I use that as a title for one of the chapters in the book is, you know, the, the seed of CRISPR began in some very unglamorous labs and some very quiet, unknown countries, you know, in Europe. And uh, so it's, it's nice. It's, it's not always, you know, east and west coast of the United States. It's great to see brilliant science coming and getting the recognition it deserves from some other, other parts of the world. Uh, Alicante is definitely a, a nice part of the world. I have been there. Um, yeah. so it's a very beautiful, very beautiful city. You mentioned how fast the the, in, the industry and the field moves around yeah. CRISPR. Did you ever feel like when you were writing that you would have to go back and rewrite or amend sections just because some new piece of information would come out? Yeah, it's 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 like you know, painting the, the fourth bridge. It's uh, you just you never know when to stop. And by the time you get to the end, there's always there's another you know, David Liu's got another Nature paper. Uh, Jill Banfield or Doudner or Feng Zhang's published another another amazing uh, new new piece of the CRISPR toolbox or something. So, yeah, and I guess, of course, the, the, the Nobel Prize was a, was a case in point. You know, literally, the book comes out a day before the awards. So the paperback is coming out in May of 2020. I've written a very short epilogue that just uh, uh, just talked about the Nobel Prize and a couple of other things that happened. But, uh, yeah, there's, I, I hope and believe there'll be you know, many more books because I think this, this is just the, the, the sort of the base platform upon which so many more cool things are going to be developed over the coming years. Actually, um, I, I think, Minu, you, you were t asking me some questions about the, uh, you mentioned uh, one of the chapters being called The Heroes of CRISPR. I think Minu was, you were asking about the chapters, weren't you? The <laughs> yeah. yeah, we were uh, discussing the chapter titles and, you know, it was like, is Fix You from Coldplay? And, you know, and then we started looking at the chapter names. And so one of the questions, a fun one was around the inspiration for the chapter titles like did you kind of pick from pop culture or yeah just that did oh, that course. just happen yeah i mean this is a, this is all part of the fun of, of of writing writing the book so you'll have to give me your favorites but yeah there is i think there is a chapter called um uh, uh fix you it was a big coldplay plan coldplay fan especially in their early years it's uh uh they always got a bit, bit commercial now for my taste but uh, so yeah it's always always fun if you can work in a you know a, a popular culture reference or, uh, you know, a Pink Floyd album title or something like that. So. Yeah, we, we've got Immaculate uh, Conception here, Crossing the Germline, I thought was a great one. <laughs> Going Rogue, Farm Aid. 
Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, some of these are, are definitely um, inspired by or borrowed or lifted from other writers. I'm sure I'm not crossing the German from Antonio Regalado or somebody like that. So I'm not going to try but to pretend I, I uh, came up with all of these uh, de novo, so to speak. Yeah, no, these were definitely very enjoyable. I look forward to like, oh, what is the next chapter going to be called? And can I <laughs> like, can I identify where it came from? But uh, so speaking of one uh, chapter that stood out, not not particularly because of any funny name or something, but like Rise and Fall of Gene Therapy, I found it very fascinating that years ago, right, like decades ago, even it seemed like oh, gene therapy is here. It's amazing. We are going to use it. And then then there was something happens. There's this sudden drop and everyone's like, it's not safe. We don't want it anymore. So now with CRISPR bringing in the same promise and again, there's this big hype about gene therapy. Do you think it's here to stay now? What will the future look like? I do think it's here to stay, but it doesn't mean that we are not going to still encounter some problems and some setbacks. And I think that was one of the reasons for wanting to just take a little bit of a detour and go back and talk about the, the, the last the, the evolution of gene therapy over several decades, whether it's base editing or the old traditional CRISPR gene editing. We all have to be very conscious that this is a field and these are human patients that we're working with. And we've got to be very, I think it's collectively uh, um, careful and considerate and cautious uh, and not, not get too carried away. And I don't think any of the companies or any of the pioneers in this field are, because I think they realize that you know, too many setbacks and, and this whole field could take a, a very severe um, hit. So, uh, but I, overall, I am optimistic. It seems we hear much less now about off-target effects. It seems as if the field has really been able to deal with that. The delivery, the, the menu of delivery vehicles is improving. I'm sure if there are still immune uh, problems or, or side effects, that they will be combated and counteracted in, in due course. Uh, and of course, there's a new wave of CRISPR companies uh, now emerging, the graphite subscribes and excisions and uh, Tessera's and many others that are going to promise uh, to deliver even more kind of sophisticated riffs on CRISPR-Cas9. So it's a very, it's a very bright future. That's that's good to know. I I think so too. Uh, and hopefully we'll we'll see that unfold before our eyes. So one one last question around like you know your book kind of covers from the or even times pre CRISPR to like now kind of predicting a little bit uh, the future of gene therapy and everything. So what are the one or two main takeaways that you would want your you know readers to see from this book? Well, I think the one takeaway is that the, the, the future is not, it's not a foregone conclusion and it's not going to happen overnight. At the CRISPR Journal, we've just published a, a mini review by the great Fyodor Ernov on the Victoria Gray sickle cell clinical trial. And he spends the last, I don't know, thousand words or more talking about the, those next steps and how you know, the many years and hurdles, regulatory hurdles, and so the many challenges ahead, we haven't we need a whole other podcast episode to talk about pricing because you know these breakthrough gene therapies, um, once they're approved, come with two million dollar price tags often. So how are we going to make this equitable, and how are we going to administer uh, this these these amazing medicines to people not just in America and, and the, the first world, but in other regions of the world, you know, like you know, big portions of Africa where 
where of course sickle cell is uh, is uh, so prevalent. So that's one important consideration. So we have to keep our feet on the ground. There's also, of course, the big part of the book um, talking about the ethical ramifications of the uh, experiments of Hojang Kui and the CRISPR babies. Um, the two that we know of, we think a third one was born six months afterwards, but we know virtually nothing about other than their nicknames and the readouts of their sequence at the CCR5 locus, which he, he attempted to edit. Uh, we know, I think, virtually nothing about uh, about the fate and, and welfare of those children, which is uh, uh, too bad. I, I hope that that picture changes. In as I was wrapping up the book, the National Academies of Sciences and the UK Royal Society came out with their uh, big uh, commission report on charting a pathway, a translational pathway for embryo editing, which I think was very well received by the community on the whole. And they have charted a very narrow course by which under certain conditions where both members of a couple have uh, a homozygous for a recessive disease like sickle cell or maybe cystic fibrosis. Um, so pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is not going to allow them to select a healthy embryo from the, from the pool of IVF embryos that they could, um, they could produce. Uh, so under those strict uh, situations, uh, circumstances, maybe uh, we as a community, as a society, might allow uh, embryo sanctioned embryo editing to uh, proceed. Uh, you know, there are probably more, uh, this will be a sad little glib, but there are always more people working and, and testifying for that commission than there are people who might actually qualify given the, how, how narrow those circumstances are. Uh, uh, but so I don't think we've heard the end of embryo editing. There's always a, a little concern at the back of my mind that um, somebody is uh, uh, thought that what Herjank we attempted was um, not criminal or not to be disavowed, but actually a very cool and you know the, the future of medicine. So somebody is going to set up some sort of you know medical tourism clinic in some hard to reach part of the world that uh, and, and, and give us a go for. Uh, uh, you know, whatever gene. So I spent a couple of chapters talking about the pros and cons of this. Uh, I come down very harshly against doing this sort of thing, but that doesn't mean I think that it won't necessarily stop people from fantasizing or dreaming or um, thinking that it's just the way that we've seen, you know, hundreds of stuff, you know, pretty dicey stem cell clinics, you know, crop up all around the world that somebody may may not uh, take, take, a, take a, a punt on doing this as well. Yeah, no, those are really great points. And it does really come across very well, your chapters on ethics and the emphasis on, you know, just because we can doesn't mean we should. So, yeah, well, I think for people who are interested in this, they'll, they'll certainly get a taste of that in my book. Um, uh, Hank Greeley's new book, Crisp for People, is also uh, highly recommended because it, it really is uh, very much more focused on that topic. Uh, Evan Kirk sees the Mutant Project. And well, Walter Isaacson doesn't need a plug from me, but uh, people will be, yeah. if they're picking up editing humanity, they're probably going to want to take a peek at uh, the code breaker as well. All right, great. Thank you so much for your time today, Kevin Davis, for the interview and Kevin Holden for being such an awesome co-host. Thank you both. Thanks for having me. It's been my pleasure. Yeah, definitely. We're, we're definitely happy to give you a plug, Kevin. So fantastic <laughs> book, highly recommended to all of our listeners. Please check it out. Editing Humanity by Kevin Davis. Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. I invite you to check out the Synthigo blog, The Bench, for more great CRISPR content. Please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us 
at crispercuts at synthigo.com. CRISPR Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthigo. Produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.